Can you imagine you have a very good, good friend? Somebody that's been there with you in the most difficult sort of circumstances. This is the condition that Paul found himself in. If you recall from the the book of Acts, we know that Paul was primarily used to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And there arose amongst the church, what do we do with these non-Jews? You see, early Christians, the first early Christians were Jews. Peter was a Jew. James was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. But there arose a division, a contention. What do we do with these non-Jews who aren't circumcised? They don't follow the Sabbath law. They don't eat kosher. What do we do with them? And Paul had used the Lord, excuse me, the Lord had used Paul mightily to say that they needed to live by faith. They didn't have to follow the Jewish law. And Paul went over and back to Jerusalem and he had a conference with some of the church leadership. And there was a gentleman, a best friend, Barnabas, who stood up with him and said, no, this is what God is doing. And then fast forward. Paul's back in Antioch, sort of the the headquarters of Paul's ministries. We might call it the headquarters of Paul's missionary because the church at Antioch is what sent him out on these various missionary journeys. And so Paul's there at Antioch, his best buddy. Barnabas is there with them. And then Peter comes along. And everything is fine initially. But then Peter starts to separate himself in only eating or only having fellowship with those that were Jews. You see, Peter was really the first one, if you look back in the book of Acts, Peter was the first one. You may recall that he had this dream or this vision of a sheep coming down with unclean animals. And the Lord said to Peter, Arise and eat. And Peter said, No way, God. Through a series of circumstances, the Lord also directed a non-Jew, a Gentile, to send somebody to Peter and have him come back to his house. Peter shows up at his house, shares the gospel with them, and they become radically born again. So Peter knows this. But then Peter begins to compromise because some other Jews from Jerusalem had come up. And they started to only associate with the other Jews. The problem, of course, was that Peter was very influential. And because of his behavior, others started to play the hypocrite as well. And we talked about that last week. But here's the point of the story that we maybe didn't cover last week. Barnabas, Paul's buddy who had stuck with him through thick and thin, also played the hypocrite. And so here's Paul saying, what do I do? As we read last week, Paul stood up and confronted Peter for his hypocrisy in front of everyone. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. You see, you and I need to live by faith even though it is difficult, even though you may be the only one. You may have a friend or somebody that you consider a close friend who, through circumstances, is no longer that way towards you. Now, it doesn't mean that later on we find in the, in, in, the, in the Scriptures in the New Testament that indeed Peter and Barnabas' relationship was eventually restored. But to live by faith means that our lives are in constant outlook of trust and dependence towards God. To live by faith means that you and I have a constant outlook, a constant viewpoint or worldview of what? of trust and dependence towards God. Now, life gets difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's 
the little inconveniences of life that really trip us up. You know, it's, it's oh my goodness, I need gas this morning, and I've, I meant to get it yesterday, but I didn't, and now I'm, now I'm freaking out, or maybe I'm stuck on the side of the road, or whatever else it might be. And those things can really trip us out. But it also can be things of much greater significance. Things like unexpected bills or health issues or relationship issues that can really challenge our faith. And how do we live with a constant outlook of trust and dependence on God? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I want to read to you. Uh, we're going to back it up just a little bit and start in verse um, 14 so that we can sort of get the whole context here. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to be like Jews? So again, this is what we talked about last week. Peter, in his liberty, said, you know what? I think I might like a bacon cheeseburger, even though it's not kosher. And so he had one. And then when these other Jews came along, all of a sudden Peter was like, oh, I'm better than others. I'm, I'm not going to fulfill the letter of the law or I'm not going to hang out with these other people. And we talked about that last week, that oftentimes in the early church, what we would call a fellowship meal is what they would have, but it also incorporated communion with it. And so here's the problem. There were non-Jews who would come but then be ostracized or set in the back and then they weren't allowed to partake in communion together simply because they were not Jewish. And so Paul called them on the carpet regarding that. Verse 15, And we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, even we who believe in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. So here's the idea. If you were being Jewish, or maybe you grew up in a religious setting where you were simply told different things that you had to do in order to be a good Christian. Maybe you were told that as a good Christian, you never saw movies, or you never went to a dance, or you never played cards. Sometimes in Christian circles, somebody makes a big deal about how much you give. And if you give a, a tithe or a 10%, then you're sort of checking off a box that you're a good Christian. But if you give less than 10%, well, you're not as spiritual as somebody else. Or maybe it's even something like communion, that you partake in communion and all of a sudden that makes you more spiritual. Or if you missed communion Sunday, then somehow you're less spiritual. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It is not by works of the law. Now, for a Jewish person, it meant keeping kosher, which means eating a kosher diet. Milk or dairy products were never mixed with meat. You didn't eat certain, most shellfish and so forth. So if you really like shrimp or crab or something else like that, it's off the menu. But then there were all kinds of Sabbath laws, how far you could walk and what you could or couldn't do. Matter of fact, in some, some circles, there are what they call Sabbath appliances, appliances that you can pre-program ahead of time so you don't do the work of turning it on, although you programmed it the night before. I'm not sure how that works better. But anyways, you get the idea that there are certain rules and regulations that they had to keep. And Paul is saying, keeping those doesn't make you holy. It doesn't justify you. 
And that's what he's explaining here. So let's continue on here in verse 17. But if while we speak to the justified by Christ, now again, justified, it means that we are legally declared by God through faith in Jesus Christ that the penalty for our sins is not counted against us, that we are forgiven. How are we forgiven? Because of faith. God doesn't owe you a favor because you do certain things. It's by faith. It's a total faith experience. And we'll talk some more about faith as we go along. So here's the idea that while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So he's answering their question even before they get a chance to ask the question. You see, first of all, we are right before God, or God considers you to be part of his family by faith in Jesus alone. It's faith in Jesus. It's not faith in Jesus plus something. Faith in Jesus plus you have a bumper sticker on the back of your car. Faith in Jesus plus you play Christian music at home. Faith in Jesus plus you give to the church. Faith in Jesus plus you went on a missions trip. No, it's faith in Jesus alone. But some, and even to this day, are saying that's not enough. Faith in Christ isn't enough, that you have to have something else. you got to do something more. It's as if they're saying, if God justifies bad people, what's the point of being good? Have you ever thought that or had somebody say that to you? Why do I need to be good? If God's going to justify me anyways, why can't I just live like hell? And Paul answers this question. He's going to give us three responses to this, to this question. I don't know if you can see all that up there, but I'll try to explain that for you. First of all, we seek to be justified by Christ, not by Jesus plus works. Our justification, the, the work that was done by Jesus Christ on the cross, we have to receive it by faith. I want to rec- make you remember or re- have you recall the two thieves on either side of Jesus on the day that he was crucified. One thief had expressed faith, and Jesus said, Today you will see me in paradise. He never had the opportunity to do anything to earn his salvation, yet God justified him. So, but here's the problem. We ourselves are found to be sinners. Although I have been justified by Christ, do you ever struggle with sin? Now, if we're honest, the answer is, of course, yes. We all do struggle with sin. So what does that make us, or what's going on? You see, we acknowledge that we still struggle with sin, but we are still justified by Christ. Does that mean, then, that Jesus somehow is a sinner because he justifies us and you still struggle with sin? And his answer is certainly not, or absolutely not. Because you and I are sinners does not make God or Jesus Christ a sinner. It does not make his authority or make it that Jesus approves of your sinful lifestyle. Uh, Be clear here. You're not justified by your actions, but nor is there an excuse for us to continue to live like hell. The Bible's full of all kinds of verses that tell us 
that we are to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. But here's the thing. Sometimes in some Christian circles, we get things mixed up. We think that if I stop smoking, then I'll be more like Christ. Or if I don't go to movies, or if I don't do this and don't do that, I'll be more like Christ. And what Jesus wants us to do is, first of all, have our hearts set on Christ. And then the evidence that our hearts are set on Christ is that I no longer desire to smoke, as an example. That I am wiser in choosing what kind of movies I go to. Not saying you can't go to a movie, but are you being wise and saying, okay, what am I going to submit my mind and my heart to? Because my fundamental desire is I do want to grow in Christ. You see, that's what God wants. God wants to capture our hearts, not just our behavior. And once he captures our hearts, our behavior will change. I don't know about your moms, your individual stories for your individual moms, but in a general sense, most moms want what? They want their kids to be successful. They don't want their kids just to behave when they're looking at them, right? You want them to behave when mom is there, but they want them to behave or moms like to brag about their son and their daughter when they're not there and they're doing well. And it's sort of that idea that mom wants your heart to be like the heart of Christ. And that's what God wants for us, that we would be people that are ruled by God. So it's not that we are justified by our actions or our works. We're justified by faith. But if you've come to a living faith in Christ, it ought to become evident in how you live your life. Let me give you a short definition of being a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but is somebody against whom God no longer counts sin because of his faith or her faith in Christ. A Christian is not somebody who has no sin because then none of us would ever be good enough, but somebody against whom God no longer counts or holds sin against us because of our faith in Christ. Moving on to verse 18, but if I build again those things which I destroyed, I myself become a transgressor. What's he talking about? The legalistic law. If I come to faith in Christ, but then I go back to the legalistic rules and regulations, you can't play cards, you can't dance, you can't go to movies, or whatever else it might be, and you think that somehow you're causing yourself to be mature because you take only cold showers, or you never look at anything on the internet, or whatever else it is. When you place your faith in those things, what you're saying is, I can make myself good enough. And God says, you can never make yourself good enough. You're the your very, very best day, no matter what that day was, just think back in, in your, your lifetime, and you can think back, man, that was a day that I did things right. <laughs> I messed up a lot of other times, but this one day, I did things right. <laughs> you know what God says about your very best day here in your own human efforts? It's like filthy rags. It's nothing. It's not good enough. Because God is absolutely holy, and he requires absolute perfection. And you might rightly say, that's not fair. 
because nobody on earth is perfect except Jesus. And that's why we need to have faith in Christ. In a moment, we'll get into that verse that talks about us putting on Christ, that there becomes this exchange. The life that I, no long, that I live in this world, I no longer live for myself, but I live for Christ. And that I put on the righteousness of Christ. I put on the holiness of Christ because I've responded to him in faith. So if we build again, it's going back to the laws of Moses. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not... Those two are okay, but what about when it says thou shalt not covet? What about taking care of all the dietary laws? What about the Sabbath day work? And on and on it goes. When we put ourselves in that position of saying, I will make myself holy for God, God looks at us and says, what you do is not good enough. How is it that we try to build again on something that God did through the law of Moses? When God himself said the law of Moses was not sufficient or complete. Now, God never said the law of Moses is wrong. He just said it wasn't enough. The law of Moses is there. It's a tool. It's great. It's wonderful to point out our desperate need for a Savior. It's like if, if you're trying to build something and you take a tape measure to measure something. That's wonderful. It tells you that something is this big. It does its purpose. But that measuring tape doesn't cut or build or have the imagination to put things together. It's just an inanimate object that says, did you measure up or not? That's what the law of God is, the law in the Old Testament. It's a measuring stick to say, are you holy like God is holy? And our correct response is to say, God, help me. I can't be holy like you are holy. And then Jesus' response would be something like, son or daughter, you finally came to the point where I can help you. As long as we are endeavoring to make ourselves legalistically right before God, we will constantly fail. This, of course, is the great tragedy of legalism. It's trying to be make yourself more right with God. And the more you rely upon that, the more you expose how unholy you really are. And therefore, you end up heaping more sin on yourself. Because what you're basically saying is, God, your sacrifice, it's not good enough. God, your master plan of how to rescue my soul, I don't like it. It's not good enough. I can do better. That's a tragedy, especially spiritually. How dare we say to God, God, what you've designed to do is not enough. I got a better plan, God. Now, we might say that to God, but when we are spiritually astute or at least sober-minded, spiritually speaking, it's clear for us to be able to say, I'm not good enough for God in my own efforts. And that's the amazing truth of this tremendous love that God has for you and I. He knows that you're not good enough, and yet he still loves you. He's drawn you with loving kindness. And he says, I want to transform you. I want to empower you to live for me. You have to stop trying to do it yourself and let God 
work in your life. Moving on to verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this might sound, at least at first glance, just sort of gobbledygook. It might just sound like just sort of spiritual words, but let's try to break it down. Notice the first phrase here. For though, the law, th- though I died to the law, I through the law died to the law that I might live to Christ. Notice, first of all, the law is not what's dying. God is not saying the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt honor your mother and father. He's not saying those are irrelevant. What he's saying is your ability to satisfy the law is not sufficient. So it's not the law that's dying. The law reflects in its context the holy heart and character of God. When the law says, be holy as I am holy, he's right. There's nothing wrong with the law. It just points out that you and I can't live up to it. So Paul says that he died to the law. In other words, he's no longer looking to the law as his resource for life and godliness. He's no longer walking around and saying, and he was a Pharisee. He was a very religious man. He was zealous. He's no longer walking around saying, look, I'm holier than other people. Look at me. I put on a sport coat this morning, so I'm holier than somebody else. He's not saying that. What he's saying is my faith is all in Christ. He's not rejecting the law. He's just saying the law is not sufficient to cause me to live. So what he is saying is this. As long as I try to justify myself, as long as I try to justify myself before God by keeping the law or religious duty, then I'm dead. As long as I think that I make myself right before God because I give money to the church, or I go on a missions trip, or I wear a long dress, or I wear a sport coat, as long as I'm thinking that those things is what makes me right with God, then I'm dead. But when I die to the law and religious duty, I then can become alive in Christ. Now, we're not saying not to put on clothes. We're not, saying, we're not saying that you can't give to the church, but understand this. How much you give is not what saves you. Otherwise, if you were poor, you don't have the ability to give. And somebody wealthy would sort of automatically get in because they have more money. And that's not God's system at all. Matter of fact, If you recall, Jesus made a big deal. He was in the temple. It was a big giving ceremony. It was was like what you see on TV today, people with those huge oversized checks. Look at me, I gave $1,000, and they get up in front of everybody, and they say, look how much I gave. Jesus says he wasn't impressed with that. Then there was a widow that came in who gave a mite, a couple of cents. But he said she gave more. Why? Because she gave of what little she had. In God's economy, when it comes to giving, it's not the dollar amount, it's your heart. 
You see, we as human beings, we always get excited about what somebody gives, the size of the gift, how fancy it is. And God is more excited about our hearts being conformed to him. So as long as I try to justify myself before God by keeping the law or religious duties, maybe it's a baptism or communion or something else like that, then I'm dead. We'll have a baptism here in a, in, in a short little while, not this morning, but in a little while, a few weeks. But baptism itself isn't what rescues you or saves you. Baptism is an outward sign of what God's done in your heart. Should you be baptized? Absolutely. But understand, baptism isn't what saves you. Otherwise, when you took a bath last night or this morning, you would be saved again. And that's not the issue. If you're outside yesterday and you got rained on, then all of a sudden you're saved again. No, that's not how it works. It's by faith. And he goes on to say here, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified. In other words, I count myself as being dead to my fleshly, earthly desires and alive to Christ. You see, what I mentioned just a few moments ago, it is this great exchange occurs. And it happens by faith, this exchange, where I take my try-to-be-right-before-God attitude and mindset, and I give it up and I give it to Christ. I crucify it to the cross. And when we say crucify, that means it's dead. It no longer has an effect on me. And then Jesus gives us his life. You take your life, whether you were Mr. Goody Two-Shoe or the worst scum on the earth. You give your life and you give it to Christ. And he takes that. And then he gives you his life in exchange. Christ comes to live in you. Your life is no longer your own. Your life belongs to God. And when he gives you this exchange, he gives you his righteousness, his holiness, his power to overcome sin. He gives you his faith. He gives you all of himself. When we talk about the flesh, we're not talking about the, the life that I now live in the flesh is not my own. We're not talking about our physical body, but the aptitude or the reliance upon myself to be able to do things. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, John 3, 6. Flesh here means the whole nature of man, inclusive of our reason and our instincts. This flesh, Paul says, is not justified by the works of the law. Your reason. God gave you the ability to think but you're not saved by your ability to think. Your instincts. God has given you instincts, but you're not saved by your instincts. God has given you emotions, but you're not rescued or saved by your emotions. You're saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And that's what we need to major on. The focus here is not so much about the flesh, as much as it is about faith. Do you live in faith? 
Faith is what connects us, you and I, so intimately with Christ. Jesus lived over 2,000 years ago. And we're not talking some Star Trek time travel sort of thing to go back, not going back to the future or anything else like that. We're connected with Christ through faith. And that's essential for us to understand. Your faith is what connects you to Christ, which then allows you to give to Christ whatever you think is good and all the bad stuff of your life. Again, if you're Mrs. Goody Two-Shoe or you're the scum of the earth, you give your life to Christ and say, this is what I am, here it is. By the way, did you know God already knows every dirty, dark secret about your life? So that when you give to him, you're not cheating him because it's like he didn't know. It's not like you sold a car to somebody and you know that if it rains, it doesn't work. And you just make sure to sell it only on a clear, sunny day. And then they drive away and it's like, okay, it's their problem. And then the next time it rains, oh my goodness. That's not the way God works. God already knows all your problems. And he says, give them to me. Give them all to me. So this exchange is you take your life with all of your good points and all of your bad points. You take it all and you give it to Christ. And in exchange, he gives you himself, his righteousness, his holiness, his power to overcome sin. All of his promises are yours because you exchange your broken life. Or maybe if you think you have a pretty good life but you give it to Christ in exchange. We talk about being one with Christ. One with Christ means I now have faith, I have faith or I live by faith. And because of this faith, I have, because of this great exchange, I have now Christ righteousness. When God the Father looks at you, if you have faith in Christ, what does he see? He sees Jesus perfect and holy. You and I still see broken vessels. We're still hung up on our different things. And by the way, we all have our hang-ups. Some of our hang-ups are more obvious than others, but we all have our hang-ups. But in this royal great exchange, you take your life, you give it to Christ, and he gives you his righteousness. So God the Father looks at you and says, you are righteous. But he also gives you Christ's victory over sin. Realize this. Was Jesus ever tempted? Yes. He was tempted and yet without sin. Anybody here in this room ever struggle with temptation? You don't have to raise your hand. You can raise your hands. We ought to be saying yes and amen. Okay? I know it's embarrassing in church to admit that you struggle with temptation, but we all do. Did Jesus sin? He was tempted yet without sin. So guess what? In Christ, you can have victory over your temptation. Whatever your sin is, you can have victory in Christ. And that's a mark of somebody who's living by faith, is experiencing this sort of victory. And then also, because Christ has given you this great exchange, you're given him you know, your, your broken life, your dirty life, you, I'm sort of good, or other people think I'm sort of good, but I know I'm not good enough life. You're giving it to Christ. He's given you his righteousness. He's given you victory over sin, 
And then, in addition, he gives you the power to live for him. God, life is too hard. And God says, oh, I'm so glad you finally began to talk to me. And let me empower you. And that's what living by faith means, is you go to God and you say, God, I can't do this. Or, Lord, I'm having a struggle. Lord, I don't know why, but I just woke up in a bad mood today. Would you fix my mood today, God? Lord, you know I have a short temper, or I have a tendency to be very negative, or I have a tendency to fall into this trap or that trap. And God, I ask that you would empower me to live for you today. Maybe you're not an outgoing person, and you know that God has called you to share the gospel with somebody. But in your natural person, you're not that outgoing person. And you say, oh, I don't think that's for me. That's for somebody else. Maybe instead you're the very outgoing person and God is saying for you to be quiet. You're like, no, God, I can't be quiet. I have to talk. And God can give you the power to do both. To be bold and share the gospel with others. Maybe give a word of encouragement to somebody but also at times to be quiet. You see, when we talk about faith, this word faith sometimes is a little confusing for us. But let me read to you or give you a list of sort of words that might help you understand what we talk about when we talk about faith. Now remember, we're talking about faith in Christ. Okay? So another word that we could use for faith is the word confidence. Are you confident in Christ? Another word for faith would be trust. Are you trusting in Jesus? Another word would be resilient. Are you resilient in Christ? No matter what, you're going to believe in Christ. Another word would be conviction. We admire people who live out their conviction. Are you living out your conviction for Christ? Another word for faith would be belief. Do you believe every day in Christ? Another word for faith would be assurance. Do you walk around, do you live day to day with an assurance that your God loves you and has given you power to live for him? That's what we mean when we say, I live by faith. If you're living by faith or by confidence, trust, reliance, conviction, belief, or assurance, then it results in, the result of this sort of faith is devotion. Are you devoted to God? You see, your faith produces devotion. Loyalty. Are you loyal? Now, we'd like to have people that are loyal to us in an earthly realm, but are you loyal to God? Faithfulness. We love to have people in our lives who are faithful, but spiritually speaking, in your relationship with God, is your confidence in God producing faithfulness in your life? Commitment. Is your Trust in Christ, producing a commitment to Christ. Fidelity is your resilience in Christ, producing fidelity in your life towards Christ. Is your confidence in Christ, producing consistency. The result, again, of faith is devotion, loyalty, faithfulness, commitment, fidelity, consistency. And i got a couple more words for you. Dedication allegiance and belief. Is your faith in Christ producing this character? These are all character flaws in your life. Notice it is not you being 
dedicated to God, which produces faith. Instead, it's faith in Christ that produces a dedication to God. Notice, it's not loyalty that produces faith. It's faith in Christ that then produces loyalty. If we had time this morning, we could go through Hebrews chapter 11, what we oftentimes call the the hall of fame of faith. And it gives us example after example of Old Testament men and women who lived by faith, and they did tremendous things. But the author of Hebrew points out to us that it was by faith. Let me give you a couple little reminders, and then you can go home and read Hebrews chapter 11 for yourself. Noah was a man who built the ark, and we oftentimes think about that. Man, can you imagine building an ark? It never rained before. And then gathering all the animals together. But the author of Hebrews points out that he did it what? In faith. His action, but it was produced by faith. We might think about Abraham offering his son Isaac because God told him to. But he did it by what? By faith. We might think of Rahab the harlot as as they went to Jericho. And she made an agreement with the spies for Israel. But she did it by what? By faith. She's known as Rahab the harlot. So she couldn't justify herself. For all eternity, for at least all of the rest of human history, she's known as Rahab the harlot. How would you like to have that name? But it was her faith. Matter of fact, did you realize that her name is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because it was her faith that justified her. Now, her faith produced actions, but it was faith. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Are you one that lives by faith? Are you justified? Is your, do you have a right standing before God by faith? To live by faith means that our lives are in constant or in a constant outlook or constant mindset of trust and dependence towards God. One more verse for us this morning, verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So here's the final argument about living by faith. If you think that by you giving money to the church or participating in religious activities, communion, baptism, whatever else, or by you keeping a high moral standard, if you think that is what justifies you by if that what justifies you before God, then you have no need for a savior. You're saying to God, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross has no effect on me. It, it, it was unnecessary. What you're saying to God, now remember, we're saying God, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful. And we're saying to him, what you provided for me, God, I don't need it. Who in the world are, are we to say to God, I don't need what you're offering me. I know it doesn't always make sense in our mind and our logic because we are ingrained in our flesh nature to be self-sufficient individuals. I can do it myself. We live in the great state of Texas and we have a culture of self-sufficiency here. Do it myself. I'll fix it myself. I'll figure it out myself. And, and there are aspects of that that are good. But when it comes to your faith, comes to your relationship with God, it gets in the way. 
your self-sufficiency. What you and I need is Christ-sufficiency. We need to appropriate this great exchange where I go to God and I say, God, here I am with all of my faults and maybe some good things, and I give myself to you in exchange God gives to us his righteousness, his power to overcome sin, his power to live this life. He builds up our faith, and that's what it means to live by faith. I'm not relying upon myself. I'm relying upon an almighty, all-powerful God who knows me better than I know myself. And he says, I want you. Matter of fact, I want you so much I died for you to display my love for you. That's what it's about. It's not easy believism. It's not just come forward one day at church and then all of a sudden everything is good and easy in your life. What it is is a life lived by faith There becomes then evidence of it. Faithfulness to God. Fidelity to God. But it all stems from this faith relationship. And this morning, each of us are called to live by faith. If you do not live by faith, then you're saying the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is of no value to you. And that's a dangerous place to be. Extremely dangerous. Most moms, I don't know your particular mom, but I bet you most moms, they love to have Mother's Day. They love to have you send them a card or give them some flowers or something else like that. But I bet, bet if you asked your mom, she would want something more than just one day. She would want something more than a flower. She would want something more than a box of chocolates. Now, she's not saying, don't give me the chocolates. Don't, 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 please, don't get me into trouble by saying, well, pastor said I don't need to give you chocolates. But she wants a life. I mean, be a little bit transparent here. My, I never call my mom enough, Okay? I'm over 50 years old, and I never call her enough. Ever since I moved out of the house, I don't call her enough. That's Whether she says it directly or indirectly, that's part of the conversation we have almost every time I call her. You don't call often enough, but I'm calling right now. I know, but you didn't call yesterday, okay? So what does that mean? I need to call more, yes, but it also means she desires a relationship. And that's what our God desires for us. He wants more from you than just a Sunday. He wants your life all the time. And that's what living by faith is. Living by faith is not just when you feel like it, but it's every moment of every day. So this morning, I don't know where you're at spiritually speaking, but I just want to give you that opportunity to ask Christ to come into your heart. Or if you've been running from the Lord, or you just haven't been, you haven't been calling dad, father, or God often enough. And what does it take to call dad, or spiritual dad? It's just a moment of prayer. Did you invite him in this morning when you were getting ready to come here? Or were you fighting with everyone else in the household? I, you know, I'll let you in on a little secret. I leave before everyone else in my house even gets up on Sunday mornings. That is the only way I've learned to avoid family conflict on Sunday mornings, okay? And it's not their fault. 
Okay? So now you know, okay? So it's not their fault. It's my fault. <laughs> but have you spoken with your dad, spiritual dad, this morning? Did you speak with him throughout the week? Have you walked by faith this past week? Tomorrow, are you going to walk by faith? I'll be honest with you. I love having you here, but I'm more concerned about how you live this afternoon and, and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. God is more concerned about that. I love having you here, and I'm not suggesting you don't come to church, but I'm saying it's more important that we live by faith on a day-by-day -day basis than just show up for church. Because that's what God is concerned about.